Empire. Hello and welcome to my podcast. Coming up, an interview with Brian Mitchell, where I talk to him about being one of seven kids growing up, how that shaped him, the Hall of Fame, transition to being a punt returner, and could he play quarterback in today's NFL? I also have an interview coming up with Jimmy Moreland, the Redskins corner, the people's corner, I call him. I ask him about that. I ask him about his nickname at JMU, which was Jimmy F. and Moreland, his thoughts on all that. But first, my interview with Brian Mitchell. So now I'm bringing on one of my all-time favorites, Brian Mitchell. And I say that because way back when, when I was a young reporter, I remember a game (laughs) where B. Mitch made a couple mistakes, but he was the last guy standing in his locker answering every question. And he felt like he had a duty to do that. And ever since, I'm like, this is my guy. So I appreciate you joining me, Brian. And the the first thing I want to ask you, because you're known for being very outspoken and all that. Have you ever lost an argument? Yeah. I, to who? I lost the argument to the man who told me to always stand there and tell your own story, my father. You know, uh, the one thing he always said, you know, if you just leave and you walk away from a situation, you allow other people to tell your story. But if you stand back you know, and you tell exactly what happened and face it, you know, then other people respect you when you're trying to say something to them. So that's the reason I was still standing there after that game, you know, because, uh, you know, I wanted to tell my story. I wanted yeah. to face uh, what happened and then just – Focus my attention on working to get better. And that and I remember, I I mean, I can still remember that scene. And it was always, it always impressed me. It set the standard for what I think pro athletes, how they should handle things. But you were, I think, one of seven kids, right? Yes. Where, where did you fit in that? And where did you fit in that dynamic? I'm the youngest of seven. Oh, I'm gosh. The youngest, uh, of seven. I got four. Well, the two, two girls are the oldest, uh, Frida and, I mean, Linda and Frida. And then I have four brothers, Blanche, Michael, Tyrone, and Daryl. And then I fall at the end. And I always told them that they saved the best for last. <laughs> well, that's, well and that's, but how did, that's got to shape you. Like I said, you stand out in a lot of ways. How did being last in a group of seven shape you? Well, it, you were always humble. Um, you had to learn how to fight because you weren't the biggest guy. So and the thing about you always had someone telling you what to do. Uh, but the whole thing about it is, if you were to see me around my family, uh, although I went to the NFL, they still treat me like the baby brother. You know that's how so? The way it is. What do they do? Uh, what, uh, my sisters, uh, they they still want to dress me. Uh, they <laughs> constantly uh, they send me cologne all the time. Uh, my brothers, when I get home, it's like remember you still my little brother. Uh, they are the ones that kind of keep me grounded and then uh, humble. Because all of the NFL stuff that that that's good, that gets left outside the door when I go home, yeah. so uh, it's been it's, it was great to be with them. Uh, it taught me how to be fast because you know you get to the kitchen table last, you don't eat. <laughs> <laughs> well, listen, I was the fourth of five, and on our street, the older kids like you know we all played together. So these kids are older. You're five years. I was five years younger than some of these people, but the younger kids were the ones who excelled. The older kids did well, but the younger ones are the ones who really excelled. Did you kind of, yeah. I mean, is that, is that kind of what happened to you? Yeah, because, uh, you know, when, once I got to be, my brother Darrell is five and a half years older than me. 
And uh, I basically hung with him and went with him everywhere that he went. And uh, I can remember playing football with them when I was 12. He, they were 17. And they wouldn't hit me as hard. But, you know, I got to the point where I was talking so much trash <laughs> and they started to hit me because they were upset with me. And Even I started though. lifting weights around that time. Uh, he was playing high school football and I would go with him sometimes. And I started lifting a little bit. And I just became much more of a competitor because I always dealt with you know, basketball, we, we raised, my whole street was all relatives. Yeah. And there were about 25 to 30 homes. My grandmother had owned all the property. And, you know, we when we competed, I competed with the older people. So when I finally started competing in school, junior high and high school, nothing scared me, nothing bothered me because I've been dealing with that my whole life. Certainly didn't do what you did, but I can relate just from the standpoint of how you have to try and stand out. Um, when did you, you talk about talking trash at age 12. When did you realize that you were good at doing that? They're good at talking trash? Yeah. <laughs> Probably as long as I can remember. Cause I remember, <laughs> uh, I can tell you that was the time me and my brother and Michael, we were playing, uh, we were playing basketball. We had like a little eight and a half foot goal and I was, uh, eighth grade or ninth grade. So he came over, I guess he had been hanging out with some of his friends. You know, he's a little, he's much older than me. So he comes over there and he's talking a little trash. And I dunked on him and he got mad. <laughs> and I kept talking to him. So you keep talking, we'll punch you in your face. You know, and this is my older brother. So I got me. He, he said he was going to punch me. So I caught him with a quick one and took off. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I knew I was good at the, uh, the, the the talking aspect because, you know, you watching them my whole life. You know, my dad was one who he was quick with it. Mm. You know, I, I tell people my dad was a Muhammad Ali of my time because he basically was a. Uh, he would he would give he had these quick ways in that quick wit know how to say knew how to say things to people, and sometimes he'll say something so quick and you have to later on you go what did you just say? <laughs> and uh, I never you know I just try to stay on top of it and the physical you know if it, I always felt you know we we talking we were playing a dozens and never did you have to worry about fighting but that one time with my brother <laughs> but. Uh, you know, I was good at it, and I just kept I kept enhancing it because it got to the point of when I started playing football in high school and got to college, I noticed that people would worry more about what I was saying really? than what they were supposed to be doing. So that's why I tell people I don't call it trash talk. I call it smart talk. <laughs> well, that, and that's – listen, I was going to ask you too that you go from having to switch positions in college when you get to the NFL – why do you, you know, looking back, I mean, I remember I've had this conversation with you a couple times over the years, but I'm wondering if in hindsight, you know, giving a lot of room for when it happened, why do you feel you were able to make that switch and not only make it, but flourish in your new role? Well, I always viewed myself as a football player, not a particular position. You know, uh, when I was in the sixth grade, seventh grade, I was a running back. And then when I got to the eighth grade, the coach moved me to, to quarterback because he said I was the best athlete that had the best arm. Just like it happens for most guys that play quarterback, they thought you were the better athlete, and they just threw you at that position. But I was able to throw the football, but I never, ever stopped running the ball because in the back of my mind, I felt if I wanted to play in the NFL, not go to Canada, I was going to have to switch positions. So, But also, thinking, I can remember vividly thinking about this was if you stay at quarterback, you touch the ball all the time. So <laughs> they get a chance to see you, and if you're still good at running the ball, you may get that opportunity and I remember when I finally got drafted, I was, they were, I was told by uh, Don Bro that they were going to draft me as an athlete because I could play multiple positions. And I guess what I thought early on, it worked out. The way the game has changed, you would have been considered a small quarterback at that time. The way this game has changed, do you think that you would have tried to make it as a quarterback? 
Uh, yeah, I think I would have a little chance or an opportunity to do it because I look at when I ran the, uh, all the stuff you see today where you see Kyler Murray, you see even Dwayne Haskins, and all these guys are running it from the shotgun, you know, which opens up things a little bit more. Uh, defenses are playing a lot softer, which gives you space. Right. I ran everything from under the center. You know, uh, we ran uh, we ran an option, but we didn't run it with the wishbone. We had two slots and two wideouts. Uh, we ran stuff from there. And most of the time when I actually ran the ball, I just ran off of a broken uh, play. But if it was like the way it is designed today and the confusion that you can make with an offense, I would see the year, my senior year I had right at 2,000 yards passing and over 1,300 yards rushing. You know, if I was doing it in this day and age with these soft defenses, I can see about 4,000 yards passing and somewhere close to 2,000 rushing. There you go. All-purpose guy. <laughs> right? And, and, and also, as a, as a returner, you had, how did, what was that adjustment like for you? I'll be honest with you, John. It was all, there was only about, you know, the, the transition I had to make was all your life you dreamed to be in this position, and this is the opportunity they give you, so you got to make the best of it. There you it. go. Only thing I had to figure out was how to catch punts. I never had caught punts before. The kickoffs were easy. The punts, you know, one guy kicks 10 punts, they can come 10 different ways. You know, now I'm, I'm learning from Ralph Mojenko, uh, who was with the Redskins, a left footer in the uh, win. He kicked 20. I might have touched one or two of them. You know, and I, didn't, I thought that was going to be a terrible situation. But um, uh, we played against the Eagles, and both Walter Stanley and Joe Howard Johnson got hurt. And Wayne Severe said, you know, you're going to have to play punt, uh, catch punts in the next game. And we were playing against the Saints. And I let the ball hit the ground, bounce up and catch it, and then I'll stay, start running because I did not have – I wasn't comfortable fielding the punt. And then uh, I remember Ricky Jackson hit me and put me on the back of my head. He said, that's going to happen to you all day. <laughs> well, he sparked that competitive nature in me, and I said, okay, we're going to find out. And I began to work at it and work at it and work at it, and I wanted to see Ricky again. Never got a chance to see him again, though. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm going to set this one up on a tee for you. I think I know you what you're going to say. Does the Hall of Fame undervalue the special teams contributors? Yeah, they do. Uh, you know, I, and, I, and why, I don't know, because, you know, we see Jan Stinneru, who was the first, only specialty player that was there. Mm -hmm. Now you have Ray Guy, you have Martin Anderson. They're kicking the ball, okay? If they can go because of what they do, the guys that were very good at doing what I did, that shouldn't be a, a, a problem. I look at guys before me, Billy Whiteshoes Johnson. I look at, uh, you know, Mel Gray and those type of guys. And then you look at myself, Devin Hester, why wouldn't somebody like that be able to get there? You know, mm -hmm. you can sit there and, and they talk about the chunk yardage and things of that sort. How many people have done it? <laughs> and how many people have stood out like the people that I named? You know, so yes, I think they don't give us enough uh, respect. And I, hell, if you really think about it, all of these receivers and quarterbacks and running backs that go and you look at the small amount of running backs, I mean, the, the linemen that actually go, right. they don't give the linemen enough respect because none of those guys can do what they do without the linemen in front of them. Well, I think, you know, you can look at Joe Jacoby as probably exhibit A on that. Exactly. And, and for, for yourself, do you think that, you know, did you think when you were done that you would be considered more for the Hall? You know what? I never really thought about it a lot until as it started going on, like my, my latter years when I would hear people start to talk about it and, mm -hmm. you know, had a conversation with Peter King. And then I saw a comment from uh, uh, Gail Sayers who said, you know, Brian could have played nowadays the way I played. You know, those things make you begin to think about it. And then when I hear people talk about it, I think about it a little bit. But I always felt that, you know, all you can do is go out there and, uh, you know, 
you, you go out and you put, I call it a resume. You put your res, the best resume you can and you let people make decisions. Because, you know, it's the Pro Football Hall of Fame. I never thought it was the defensive back Hall of Fame or right. the wide receiver or the, you know, if you're going to call it the Pro Football Hall of Fame, you need to represent every position. And why would I have to compete with a Joe Montana to get to a level when I competed with the guys that did it with me? Right. You know, that's the whole level. I should have to compete against other return guys and see who did it better or not. But that's not the way they do it. They try to say, well, is he a Jerry Rice? Well, could Jerry Rice have done what I did? Every time the Reds can struggle with the punt return game, and I'm sure you hear this too, they got to have him talk to B. Mitch. B. Mitch's got to go talk to this guy. You're very big on mentoring guys, and you're, you're motiv- you've got the motivational skills. Did you ever want to coach? Did they ever talk to you about coaching or anybody? I never wanted to coach because I always felt when I got there at 7, 30, 8 o'clock, they were already there. When I left at 6 that night, they were still <laughs> there. And true. I hear people talk about the coaches being there forever. I just felt that if you can just give someone something that they can work on directly, being like a consultant or just being a mentor to some guys, that may work better. Uh, the coaching thing is is depending on what coach you end up with. You know, you you get with the coach where they want you to be there damn near eighteen hours. Yeah. I couldn't do that. Now, if I was to go under a guy like a Tony Tony Dungy who believed that you go home, you with your family for dinner, you better be home by six o'clock. Uh, a guy like Bruce Arians, if you don't right. go to your kids' game on Friday, I'll fire you. You know, those guys that understand that there's more to life than just the actual game, and you can still have success at it. You know. Why do you have to be there for 18 hours? Why do you have to be in a three-hour practice? If you are working on the proper things, working smart, instead of going out there and doing a lot of stupid things, you can still accomplish the same. I watch teams that practice forever, meet forever, and they still don't don't have a lot of success. Right. But Coach Gibbs, I remember being out on the field with him. He believed in about an hour and 50 minutes, and then you go in. Yeah. That if would... you don't if you don't get it right, then he just felt you won't be on my football team. So he made guys really, really study when they got home. They prepared and when they got on the field they made sure everything worked out. Speaking of Gibbs, when you got here, this franchise was in its heyday. It hasn't been that mm-hmm. way for a long time. Are you you know, you're it was your what, your second year you won a Super Bowl, right? Yes. So how do you look back and what has happened and why has it gone this way? I think uh you know after Coach Gibbs left, I think uh, people did not realize, you know, how influential he was and how fair he was with his players. Mm-hmm. Because I think players ultimately want to play for somebody who knows what they're talking about and who they know when he tells them something, they can believe it. And I think, uh, like, I look at people like uh, Andy Reid having his success, and I look at definitely at uh, at uh, Belichick. You know, you basically you run your thing from the top down. You don't run it from the bottom up, okay? You don't run it from players to management. The coach has to have some influence and mm-hmm. some authority. You know, I grew up with a military father, and I've always known about the chain of command, okay? If that chain of command is broken, you're not going to have much success. So when I look at a lot of teams today, I look at the Redskins too, all right? When Coach Gibbs was here, you basically felt Coach Gibbs was the main man because that's where the final say came when it came to football stuff. Has it been that way since he left? Mm. <laughs> you know, you have so many people trying to get involved. So many people want to leave. And you need to make it because ultimately for a football team franchise to be there, if you have a right coach, the right coach in the position, that guy is going to be able to lead. When he speaks, the players are going to understand he's going to be the final say. And then you're going to be able to have success. If you're winning on the field, you're going to automatically win off the field. 
can they have blank. can they have that with Jay Gruden? You think? I think if they if they were to give Jay Jay, I would think Jay has to change back a little bit because when he first got here, he was kind of that guy who who, who told you what he believed. Yes, he did. And then when the stuff went down with Robert, he changed a little bit. And then I think he began to like that. He likes being that happy-go-lucky, joking kind of guy and be friends with everybody. I tell my kids, I'm, I'm your father. I'm not your friend. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, I, 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 I can laugh with you, but when it comes time to handle your business, it's time to handle your business. And too many times you get, they've fallen into what I believe <clears throat> has become kind of the, the crying over the crying, the, the big call over there. It's like, it's always everybody is against us. No, everybody's not against you. Right. We just want to see you get back to where you used to be. Couple of guys, last, last things here. Um, we're going to talk to you about a couple of guys, just your impressions of them. And I, we didn't see Darius guys in a regular season game. What is mm-hmm. your take on him? And what are you expecting from him this year? I think Darius guys is a guy with a lot of potential of someone who, if he's healthy, he could be remarkable, but you see what I said. If he's healthy, right. He's had, he's had, He's had that problem of getting hurt in college. He's got hurt already here. And, yes, yeah, some of the things are unfortunate. Some things you can't control. But you have to be healthy to be successful in this right. league. So he's going to have to figure out a way to keep himself healthy and keep moving forward. Listen, I remember I heard Jay say, oh, he's already an Instagram uh, superstar. Right. I'm not paying him to be an Instagram superstar. <laughs> you know? yeah. And I think that's the thing about it. A lot of guys forget, what is your first job? So you need to be a superstar on the field. All that other stuff will come for you, but I think he needs to stay healthy. What would you think of what Adrian Peterson did last year, and what again? What are you expecting from him this year? And Adrian, I'm expecting probably the same type of uh, season he had. If he if he's given the same amount of opportunity, right. probably which he's not going to get because of Darius sure. guys coming back, Chris Thompson being healthy, uh, the possibility of Bryce Love getting healthy, and we know what he can do. But Adrian Peterson has been a workaholic ever since he's gotten to the league. You know, you know that that guy is going to be ready to go. And he's had some opportunities where he got hurt, but he shows his dedication by coming back from those injuries and still having success. I look at a guy like Terry Allen back in the day, tore the left ACL, yeah. came back over 1,000 yards. Tore the right ACL, came back and still went for over 1,000 yards. That says a lot about the dedication of the individual. Last thing on the team, what do you, what do you think – or what are you expecting from this team this year? Is this a as we sit here right now? Is this a playoff team? You think? I think this team has has uh, they're better than they were as far as talent is concerned. Now, are they going to come around and have the proper chemistry and go out there and reach the the expectations of what they even think for themselves? Uh, you know, I've seen a lot of talented teams that don't have the proper chemistry and they don't gel and come together. Will this team be able to come together? Uh, is the mindset going to change from let's make sure we get to week one to let's make sure we're ready to play week one? You understand what I'm saying? The, the approach of training camp is going to dictate what happens in this season. Because too many times, you know, we, we see one per, like when they when Ruben Foster went down the other day, my mindset basically, like, oh, Lord, why? Because I know that they're going to be afraid for other guys to get hurt. Right. But if you are going to prepare – uh, everyone to play. Like I've always said, you coach all 53, not just the top 22. And if you coach all 53, when someone gets hurt, you can plug a guy in and he should be able to play. May not be at the same level as a Ruben Foster, but he shouldn't be that far behind if he's, if he's smart enough and has enough athleticism. So I hope that this, if they approach this season with the fact that we need to get ready to play, and they do it that way, then good things can happen. If they approach it as, oh, we're trying to make sure everybody gets to week one and they don't prepare, you still got to prepare for football. Right. 
if they're not prepared for football, then it could be a problem. Okay, B. Mitch, I got two more questions if you have that time. I got first I got one. It. First one is when you were playing again. You can hear it in your voice too. The the pride you took in putting on the uniform and all that. Do you still see people having that same level of pride putting on this uniform? I mean, you got here at a time where they were winning Super Bowls. I see a lot of guys that do. Mm-hmm. And I see a lot of guys that don't. And I think part of it comes from, you know, this whole the atmosphere that was uh, presented for a while. You watch, you watch this team wasn't being successful, wasn't winning, but guys acted as if they were, you know, they were just defending champions. You know, I remember a person came from uh, – uh, what was it? The Arizona Cardinals. Mm-hmm. And he came to this team and he said, man – you know, when I walk in the locker room, I, I, I would have sworn that I'd just come from a team that won the Super Bowl last year. <laughs> yeah. You know, because he said the, the mindset and the attitude was that in which we won everything last year. And he just left from a team who were in the playoffs at that point, and they were, they were trying to bust their butts to get back. And he said it wasn't the same approach. So, for me, that, you, you talk to me a lot, John. My whole thing is about pride. Believe right. in yourself. I don't need somebody else to promote me. I can promote myself. And you promote yourself by making sure you put in the work, you study. And like a lot of the guys, you know, they say, well, well, we practice. I don't think that practice, I don't think that the weightlifting is enough for everybody. It's enough for the person that's in the least amount of shape or the person that knows the least. Right. But it's not enough for everybody. So if you know you're not getting enough, you need to dedicate that time to yourself because a professional athlete, your tool is you. And if you're not taking and putting enough time into you, then you don't deserve to have a last. Very last thing. And I saved the toughest one for last here, B. Mitch. What, right. is, what is your go-to dish that you cook? My go-to dish? Oh, man, probably anything that I cook. <laughs> See, <laughs> but, I love uh, that. But, uh, <laughs> a lot of people absolutely love the gumbo. And the reason that I would say gumbo is because you're putting in multiple different types, yeah. multiple types of meat. You have all those different spices and try to make all that come. I got to tell people it's a party in your mouth, you know, and yes, I, I love yes. doing it because, it, you know, you can do a one big pot and you can feed 20 to 30 people, you know, and, and, and I'm cooking for me, just like, you know, you, you probably understand it. When you cook, people come together, yes, that's you know, they, like. they hang around and I try to do it a lot at work because I think it's a team building type situation where we get everybody that people you don't normally see, they're all in the same room now. And you enjoy it. So I would go with the gumbo and then deep fried turkey and then yeah, the etouffee. Deep... And I can throw some ribs on the, on the grill too now. And the char grill, the, ch- the oysters. The char grill oysters, oysters are, oh man, they're, they're unbelievable. See, there you go. That's, listen, this is, this, that's, your, that's the hidden real talent of Brian Mitchell right there. So, <laughs> you know, and that's why I wanted to save it for last to let people leave on that. Now they're going to go to their cupboards and try and cook like you, and they're going to fail. So, you know, that's, you know, you're setting them up for failure, but that's okay. It tastes, it sounds good to me. So, well, Brian. I'm going to make sure I bring, I'm going to cook some gumbo for the media this year. Because Tony Wiley going to get his first, then he'll drop the rest off the yard. Well, then we might not get any. So, <laughs> we'll, no, no, you're going to get some. All right, good. Sure. I, well, I cook him one pot, cook a big pot for y'all. Awesome. B. Mitch, I always enjoy talking to you. Like I said, always have been one of my favorites. Thank you for joining me. All right, John. Thank you very much, man. Thanks. Appreciate it. All right, coming up, my interview with Jimmy Moreland, the Redskins corner, the people's corner, or as the JMU folks always refer to him as, Jimmy Effin Moreland.
So I'm here with Jimmy Moreland. Jimmy, first of all, let's talk about what you guys are out here doing today, all the rookies building the garden. When's the last time have you ever built a garden? <laughs> Man, this is my first time ever building a garden. But, you know, just getting around to see the kids, how excited they are, man. It's just a beautiful day, man. You know, the sun's out. Why not come out and garden? What does it mean to you to be able to now be in a position to help with this stuff? You know, just being in a position because my, well, my, well, my community I grew up in, you know, it's not too many beautiful areas down there. So, you know, just getting around the kids, you know, help build a, the um, younger community up is a, is a blessing. Now, you've kind of been like the big name here in the first couple weeks of OTAs. Have you noticed how much fans are kind of swooning and falling in love with Jimmy Moreland? You know, you know, you notice it, but, you know, that's not my biggest worries right now. You know, my worries is just not trying to um, get in the paper, you know, learn from the vets, you know, like I, like I said before, and just, you know, um, getting to learn everybody around the whole environment of the Redskins. It's funny because, like, when I – and I kind of dubbed you on social media the people's corner because fans love you so much, but then people from JMU are like, no, 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 it's Jimmy effing Moreland. Did you, were you aware of that one? Yeah, you know, I was aware of it in college, but, you know, I let my fans go through that little metal <laughs> phase, you know, that they're going to argue here and there. But, you know, that's just JMU community protecting me. So, you know, they they, 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 they want <laughs> their players to be treated well and stuff like that. So that's just a thing with, for the fans. What do you, I know, again, we're, we're not, you know, we're not watching you guys in pads or anything like that, but what do you feel like you've been able to show? We've seen the picks. What are some of the other things early on that you feel you've been able to show? I've been able to show I can adapt to the game really fast. You know, um, my football skills, my IQ is very high and stuff like that. So, you know, I'm, I'm very adaptive to the film room. You know, not just not just planning on working out and getting my body in shape and, he- and staying healthy. What is it when you talk about the film room and all that? Are there some moments out there where you say that's, like, I'm, I made this play because I'm in position because of what my film, even in practice, has already shown me? You know, um, like, we'll be always in the film room, you know, um, Learn the defense, the coverages here and there, you know, what's my weakness in the coverage, what's my strength in the coverage, you know, um, things like that in the film room just helps a lot. One of the things you brought up when we talked to you after the draft, you said you got dog in you. Where, what, what's that dog? What is, when you say you got, what does that mean? That, mean? that means playing with a chip on your shoulder, you know, having very high confidence of the level of yourself, knowing your skills, knowing what you're capable of doing, and, you know, just going out there and just proving has it been hard to maintain that? Because, I mean, you're a guy who's kind of must, must – do you feel like an underdog just because, you know, you, you didn't go to the Division One school. You you know, you were – you're a seven-round pick. Do you feel like more of an underdog type? You know, um, growing up, I was an underdog type. You know, I was very small, um, but I, I was the person who, who's making big plays on the field, you know. Um, so I just grew up like that in the environment I was raised around, just um, looking at all the older people who came before me that was coming out my area, you know. Um, those guys led the way, you know, and I'm just here just to lead the way for the other um, young community. I've seen you reference where you've come from before and, like, some of that toughness, all that. What was it like for you growing up? You know, it was rough, you know, um, not being a big uh, big town and things like that, not not much is inside the town, you know, but um, just seeing all the um, players that were able to make it out and the ones who wasn't, wasn't on the right track. But, you know, there's great talent everywhere. What is? How does that, like, you know, everybody's kind of a product where they come from. What do you take from where you grew up, and how does that make you who you are now? It makes me the player I'm on the field because, you know, um, it's, on the field it's a sense of home, you know, safe, you know, mm-hmm. an area where I can just trust in myself, you know, and be me, you know. Um, that raised me up in my environment and stuff like that to be able to zone out all the um, the stuff for the, um, in, the, in the neighborhood, you know, um, bad things like that. And just um, getting to know your own self. How was it? How bad was it when you say that? No, it, it wasn't truly that bad. But you know, you got you get to see things with okay. a different perspective. You know, um, when I moved from out the um, 
Belgrade area and moved away Palm Beach, I was able to see what's going around in the neighborhood, what's, how, how things are, and things like that. And when for for going to college, I mean, you get to JMU, you almost was a where you was another school you were almost going to go to, right? Yeah, um, I had a lot of mat schools coming okay. out. Um, I was I was went on an early visit to Toledo, didn't weigh as much as they wanted to, so a lot of schools to they offer back in the mat. Um, I went on an early visit, I went on another visit with Coastal Carolina, me and my homeboy, yeah, my other teammate Zeke, Zeke Edmonds. You know, um, he went to UMass the next week, and they both took our scholarships. You know, so I got on to JMU late. You know, and it's just just a blessing in the skies to be able to get to a D1 AA school. Because your size, I mean, you're you're not a big guy, and I mean. I like seeing guys your size do it because it's there's something about you. Mm-hmm. So why do you feel you've been able to do it at this size? You know, just the skill level. You know, it's not always about size on the field. You know, it's, it's able to, can you be able to get all the knowledge down and focus in on the plays and know what plays to make that and do your job. You know, um, that's the biggest thing of it all, be able to do your job. Just a couple more here. But when you were at JMU, you had the one little the issue with the petty larceny. What did you learn from all of that? You know, um, just to watch my surroundings. You know, um, not everything, not everyone is good for you. You know, um, you got to be able to push the ones away from you, you know, and just make the right decisions at the same time. When did you know that, hey, maybe I can get to the NFL? You know, when I first started playing football. Really? <laughs> yeah, really. Um, I, I knew I was I was small, like I said, but I was very good at what I do. You know, none, not, never doubt in my mind was I was going to be able to be here at this level just someone give me a chance to I mean that's a hard thing like kids can say that but like you so you never wavered in that belief no I never waver you know some people say you have plan A plan B and there you have those but you know you always work hard for your plan A and that which is why you're here how small were you coming out of high school that they were saying you were too small you know I was the same height basically part of grew an inch or taller once I got into college but you know I was once 155 going into college you know so and that whole freshman off-season workout put like 20 pounds on me. I was like 180. Then, you know, just being 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 able to put on a weight, you know, and just show people that I can I can play at this level is just I'm just trying to stay on to that. You know, it's funny. I don't know if the other thing you've seen or noticed on social media is like they say, well, move him to move him to safety, move him to safety. The guy could be a really good corner. Why would you move him? You're, I mean, you seem to have a corner's mentality, correct? Yes, yeah, sir. You know, <laughs> I, I love playing press man. I love yeah. man coverage and stuff like that. So. You know, just being able to um, be in the playbook, you know, like I said, learn from the older vets and learn the schemes and things, all the in and outs of the offense, you know, just able to help me. Last thing, what do you what are you most looking forward to when you guys get to training camp? You know, looking forward to being around everyone, you know, finally putting on pads and finally be able to show what I'm worth. You know, um, it's going to be a hard, long two weeks, hot two weeks in Richmond. <laughs> so, you know, it's going to be you a You know good. what the weather's like already. That's a good thing from where you're coming from. Yeah, it can get a little bit sticky there. Yes, sir. You know, um, two hours away, jam you, you know, I'm, I'm used to the weather. You know, it's hot and then it get cold too, so. All right, thanks a lot, man. Appreciate it. Right, thank you. Up next, a podcast mailbag where I'm going to answer as many of your questions as possible and share within those answers some of my observations from the Redskins OTA workouts. Okay, let's get to your questions. Adam Hale, D.C., also who represents the BNG Report, and Todd Rules both want to know about Adonis Alexander. And Adam's question was, how has Adonis looked and his chances for playtime? 
All right, good question because he's a guy that I am intrigued to see when the Redskins get to Richmond in August or actually late July. Um, and the reason is because I've heard some good things about his offseason, the, the work that he put in. Remember, he wasn't training for the NFL last year and when he was drafted. This offseason, he had a chance to do what everybody else did last year, which is train for the NFL. So he had that chance. He looks really good when I've seen him on the field. And I'm talking physically, he looks really good. And you see the length, obviously that's not going to change. But I saw more, it looked like he, was a str- he looked stronger, which I think is a good thing. Um, and I've heard, some, again, some cautious optimism regarding his play. Um, he will stay at corner for anybody who keeps asking about him at safety. If he went to safety, it would take him a couple years to transition to become a legitimate chance to start. And I don't even know that he would be there. I do know when the Redskins drafted him in the supplemental draft, that day I asked somebody there about him and safety, and the comment I got back was they didn't feel like that he was very good there in college, at least not to play it at an NFL level. Besides, he's got length, folks. You want that length at cornerback. Um, and, and, you know, he's, look at Josh Norman. Look at Richard Sherman, guys like that. They want somebody like that, and he has a chance to be that guy in a versatile corner where he could also play. He could move around in certain spots maybe play a safety role in the red zone, for example, covering a tight end because he has that size. The, the, the thing with, with um, Alexander, if he comes through, it allows them to do something with Norman in the future if they so desire. So if, if Alexander has a good year, if he has a great August or something like that, or just a good year, and they feel like, yeah, this guy can start for them in 2020, it allows them to move on from the expensive Josh Norman if things stay the same there. All right, let's move on. Jackson Didlake wants to know how realistic are the expectations for Jimmy Moreland? Are they getting out of control? Yeah, to a degree they are. But that's kind of what happens now. He's become, you know, I I dubbed him the people's corner, as you heard in the interview. What we're seeing now is a guy who's making plays, and that's always a good thing. He's making plays because I think he's always in the right spot. He knows where to be and when it starts with that. And I always tell my kids when I used to coach that, You've got to be in a position to make a play before you can actually make them. And he has that mindset. He's a small guy, so I think it's going to take him some, you know, we'll see how he handles the physical parts of the entirety of the position, which also includes playing the run and all that. I know what he did in college. A lot different here in the NFL. Let's see there first. Now, when I would talk to people in the organization about him after the draft, throughout the spring, the comment I always got back was, yeah, they really like him. They love his attitude. He has a shot. Now, when they say he has a shot, it is to make the 53-man roster. They're not going beyond that just now just because he's picked off a couple passes in the preseason. They're going to look at the entirety of what he does on the field. There have been times where I've seen him get beat by a receiver, Trey Quinn or, or um, Kelvin Harmon in the rookie minicamp from what little the, the little that we saw. So it's not like it's been perfect out there, but you're going to hear about the picks because that's what he did in college. They're big plays. Everybody can see those. That's when you notice him. But unless you're watching him every play and you know what he's supposed to be doing and all that, you really don't know exactly how great he's doing or how well he's doing. What we do know is he's made plays. He's made himself a little bit of a name here in the spring. And from there, we'll see. But again, the, the, the expectation of the outside should be tempered a little bit because we need to see him in August in the past and all that. Has looked good now. Take it for what it's worth. And then let's see if he takes the next step, which is can you duplicate this again in, in training camp? Because I've seen a lot of guys in the spring who have stood out. You get to camp, you don't hear from them again. I don't think that's going to be the case here. 
I do my if I was doing a 53-man projection, I'd put him on the roster. But beyond that, let's see, because I think they have some guys who are better than him ahead of him, but not a lot. Um, Mr. G wants to know which coaching staff is um, um, has the best chance to become the next head coach. Easy one, Kevin O'Connell. When I had Lewis Riddick on the podcast last week, he said that people were already in the league were telling him to keep him on his radar in case he ever gets back into the NFL. Um, I think there's a reason. I think O'Connell's a smart guy, has some really good thoughts on offense. I don't look at him in the same way I looked at Sean McVay. They're different personalities. I think, I think McVay was just rare for someone his age, but I do look at them. I looked at McVay as a future head coach, and you certainly, when you're around O'Connell, you view him in that same way. So I think he'll get there eventually. Now, part two of the Kevin O'Connell question, Ray Spires, and I hope you pronounced that right, Ray. Will Kevin O'Connell be the primary play caller this year? Well, Jay Gruden has said that he is going to call the plays this year. Keep in mind, though, when, when Sean McVay, and it was in his first year as an offensive coordinator, Gruden said the same thing, that he was going to call the plays and McVay was just going to kind of coordinate the meetings and, and, and all that. Well, it turns out that McVay called the plays, but we weren't privy to that until, until the season progressed when people started seeing that McVay was the one talking a lot when they're on the headsets to the quarterback. So, but the reason why Gruden did it that way because he wanted to limit the pressure on McVeigh and the burden on McVeigh. So that way, if something was screwed up, if there was a bad, if there were questions about play calling um, or something along those lines, the heat would fall on Gruden and not a first-time play caller. So it wouldn't shock me at all if O'Connell ends up to be the primary play caller just based on the way Gruden has handled this in the past. Um, if nothing else, they'll, he will have some say in there. I mean, they're all, they're, a couple guys will be on the headset um, and contributing, and, um, but would it, it wouldn't shock me if, if O'Connell takes over more of that role. Finally, the last question comes from Marshall D. Teach. One, and actually, Tim Meek, from, um, my guy from Indy, also asked this as well. They are kind of the same thing. Marshall's question was, how confident am I in the Redskins' tack, offensive tackle position? Tim wanted to know about Jerron Christian in particular, and I think they're obviously related. So if, if the tackles are um, healthy, you know, Morgan Moses, Trent Williams, obviously everything's good, but we haven't seen that, so you've got to have the depth there. Um, I think the one thing with the starting tackles, I think Morgan Moses, I think he's got to come back and after having had a better offseason than he did last offseason. I think he'd be the first to admit that, that he could have had a, did a better job last offseason and I think it kind of showed in his play. Uh, I think there were some injury issues, obviously, and he, uh, the guy fights through a ton. But I also think that um, there were some things that he could have helped himself more that were separate from the injury stuff. And it's all about approach here, folks. And I, I'll go back to Alexander for one second. I know I'm switching back the corners, but I think that's the other thing I heard about Alexander is you got, you got to make sure that you're on time for everything. I think there were a couple times last year that wasn't the case. So I think there were some things he was still learning and I think, you know, I think that he can kind of, if he learned from all that stuff, I think it can make him help make him better corner. Back to the tackles. Um, I think the, the big question here is Jerron Christian's development. The problem is we're not seeing him right now. He's still recovering from that MCL. I was told earlier this offseason that, um, that he'd be working out with Trent Williams in the offseason, and that's good because he needs to add strength. I think that was a primary issue for him last, uh, last year in training camp and during the season. Um, I think that was a big deal. And he was very raw, um, maybe drafted a little bit high, but they liked the athleticism that they, that they liked the talent there. So, but he needs to develop. 
And um, I think if he does, then they then they're okay because Ty Inseki was a, was an older swing tackle who was getting hurt more than um, than desired, but he was a good backup tackle um, for them. And so, like they need they didn't do something to replace him. I don't know if Christian's going to be that guy. We need to see him in the one on ones and in training camp and just in the full team work to see if he indeed has added the strength and has improved. The other guy that the factor in here is Eric Flowers. Not a big, wasn't a big fan of what he did prior to coming to Washington. Got to clean up the technique. Um, you know, it's really hard to tell right now because they're in, they're not in pads. I think the line play, you need to be in pads to get a great feel for it. But you do see sometimes the bending at the waist and some issues like that. But let's see. You know, he, he does have the experience so he can help them. But right now, neither one would be the steady, good backup that Enseki was. But I think there's some. You know, with Christian, they they have to develop him and hope that he can become that guy because otherwise it will become an issue down the road. All right, that's it for the questions. The last thing I'm going to tell you, I got one cooking tip. It's one of my favorite sandwiches. My mom, I made it for her earlier this week. She loved it. Grilled peanut butter and jelly, just like it sounds. You do it in the you do it like you're doing a grilled a grilled cheese. You peanut butter and jelly in the middle. You get the butter on the outside. You put it in the grill. Flip it over. Do it. You'll love it. Make sure you use good bread, thicker bread, because that will enhance your eating experience. And that, of course, is what you want. You want to go next level? Dip it in French toast batter. Put some crumbly, like crumble up some frosted flakes, corn flakes. Put them on either side. Gives it some crunch, a little bit added texture. But if you just go the regular way, you're going to thank me. All right, folks, that's it for the podcast this week. I want to thank Brian Mitchell and Jimmy Moreland for joining me. And thank you for your questions. And I'm well aware that without you guys listening, there is no podcast. So thank you for your interest and for tuning in. And we'll talk to you soon.